Good morning and welcome again to our, our class. Just a reminder on the format, uh, the Q Talks that we're using as, as a video series to sort of give us a guest speaker every week and then allow us to, to talk about that in, in community. The Q Talks are very much like a Christian version of the TED Talks. And this morning's is actually a little bit different in that it is an interview format. Greg Thompson is going to be interviewing Michelle Higgins. Michelle is a, a minister of uh, worship and outreach at South City Church in St. Louis. So we'll go ahead and get started this morning so we have enough time to discuss this afterwards. This week about whether we should download the video first, but we have the we've got the bulletproof uh, staff wireless. So unless somebody failed to pay the bill, uh, <laughs> we need to all get off our phones. That's right. That's right. <laughs> we've arranged for the band to play though. While <laughs> It's still loading. Who would have thought it worked last week just perfectly? That's right. It's connected. to it. And one of the functions of that was that 
so much of white America could not see what was happening on the other side of the color line. Because remember, the logic of segregation was not so much to hate black people as to not see them, right? Make them disappear. And so what I want to talk about with Michelle, what, I want, what we want to talk about is what it means to see, how we can learn to see, again, through and overcome this, this opacity of the color line. So Michelle, I want, to, uh, I want us to learn to see together. The first thing I want to talk about is how do we see ourselves? How do we in the American church, how do we see ourselves? What do we need to see in our story? What do you see that we need to see? And let's talk about that for a minute. What I love is the dedication that a man named Brian Stevenson, the director of the Equal Justice Initiative, that's right, in Montgomery, Alabama, he says the key is truth-telling. Racial reconciliation is a lot of nice talk about holding hands and hugging, but if we could begin to tell the truth about the land we live on, about the people who live on that land, and about the manner in which we commune together as family and as friends, then we might know our blind spots. So what, what's the major blind spot for this country? We made native peoples invisible. In my city, there were the people of the mound, people who had ceremonial burial areas, native tribes that were removed and their mounds shredded so that we could put beautiful bridges to baseball athletes and parks dedicated to Olympic figures, we covered the actual history of a land that we stole. And so truth-telling, I think, is step one. And also, truth-telling will help us in the way that we worship, right? What's the truth about most, not just evangelical worship, but worship in the U.S.? It's white-centered. Who uses CCLI in here? Tell the truth, right? It's very white-centered. There's no understanding, there's no challenge to actually broaden and say, I might accidentally be teaching my congregation that Eurocentric worship is the only way to praise a God who sent his son not to Europe. Yeah, I don't recall him being in Europe. Right. Yeah, that, I don't so there's a huge blind spot there, right? <laughs> yeah, generally what we don't want to face is that white supremacy is the air that we breathe and to be liberated from it will feel like choking, despite the fact that the truth is to be liberated from white supremacist structure would actually be to breathe oxygen instead of poison. Yeah, okay, so I wanna follow up on this because, thank you, please clap, that's good. Uh, so let's talk about white supremacy because people hear that and they probably think, yeah, those clan people. Mm. Right, exactly right. We do not like them, but that's not what we mean when we talk about white exactly. supremacy. Because it, it, so say more about what white supremacy is and how, how we talk about it. Yeah, it's the actual who built, who founded institutions, and how are they situated, how are they made to prosper, upon whose backs was all the pressure made to erect a system, or actually literally erect a building, and then into whose pockets does all the profit go from whatever happens in that system. So, and I think it's even more insidious than that. We talk about privilege, we talk about advantage, you're born with a silver spoon in your mouth, whether or not your daddy could pay all the bills, right? We talk a lot about the fact that in my city, 92% of the people who get ticketed for jaywalking are black. And generally, white people don't get ticketed for jaywalking. You can literally walk across the street whenever and wherever you mighty well please. And if you are black, 
chances are you'll get a ticket. What happens when we see that in the church? The silence that comes with refusing to talk about social issues. When we decide I will be silent about social issues, but I will amplify issues of addiction or my own sin. I want to lament and curse at myself because I'm such an evil person, but I don't want to lament and denounce evil structures then I'm actually teaching people to worship only the purity that they can gain for themselves and not the true justice that would reconcile man to man, human to human rather, and human to God. So white supremacy is not just people in hoods. White supremacy is people who are so comfortable that they don't wanna speak up. People who are so afraid of losing some amount of privilege that liberation will feel like oppression. That's not my quote. Who said that? Like five people have said that, right? You're so afraid that liberation is going to cost you some privilege. And what that means is you're going to have to give up singing and speaking in English every Sunday all the time. You're going to have to give up only doing one type of doxology. You have to give that up because you don't own Jesus and you don't own the manner of worship that goes to him, and you're gonna have to give up only doing righteous works inside your sanctuary, only caring for the people who are quote unquote blood relatives. You're gonna have to give up believing that when you go to church, you should expect to be coddled instead of expecting to be transformed via, come on, hey baby. <laughs> Instead of expecting to be transformed via a discomfort, a nonviolent transformative tension. Now that's Dr. King, and if he wasn't right, he was. What am I doing here? Yeah, he was. You know, so I think it's important when we're talking about this. One of the things that you're saying that we need to see about ourselves and our own story is that it is, it is uh, inexorably in the American church has been a white supremacist story. And that's not just a volitional, but, a, but an institutional, institutional reality. Uh, and that white supremacy is not just about uh, the hatred of black people. It is about inhabiting and benefiting from a social order that is consistently privileged white, especially white male. Men. White male. Did we, did we say male? Yeah, we said male. So Come white on. males throughout its history. And until we can acknowledge that, then we are participating in, in what is essentially a fiction. So that's we need, one of the things we need to see about ourselves. I want to move on to talk about about our neighbors because one of the effects of this cataract is it also blinds us to our neighbors and to uh, a lot of the things that they are doing and that they are working in. This has been, again, the function of white supremacy is to, uh, to keep white Americans inside a particular little sphere where we don't know what's, what's going on. And so a lot of what you've been doing with the Black Lives Matter movement I think is really important here because you've been working with people for justice, people that don't always ground justice in the same way that you do or pursue it in the same way that you do. And that means that you're working with your neighbors. And so I'd love for you to help us. Okay, where are we blind to what our neighbors are doing, to who they are, to what they're laboring for? Help us help us see that. Our biggest blind spot is that we require multiple pieces of information before we will dignify someone. And so if you truly believe that the God of the Bible created humanity, then all you need to know about someone is that they are human and therefore worthy of dignity. However, what we do in the church is we say, 
tell us your background, tell us your hopes and dreams, tell us how many degrees or how much trouble you've been in in life so I can either dignify you or pity you. And then that decides how worthy our friendship will be. Working with your neighbors requires very little. Only that you recognize the value of human life is shored up simply by being a human who is alive. There's not much else you need to know. And so when I work with my neighbors, I understand that our tactics will be different. I understand that my desire to reconcile and dialogue with the police may not be matched by those who have actually been heavily brutalized by police forces that are utterly corrupt. And I'm not judging those people for wanting to dismantle police forces, and they're not judging me for wanting to try to make things better. Our tactics are different, and we are so afraid in church, we're so afraid of not being in control, that we can't imagine that we might not be the only people with a good idea. We are so afraid of being behind that we stop and we have a meeting about whether or not the uh, trans queer humanist should share about what community safety is in our church that it's been five and a half hours they already found another venue baby your church is worthless to the community because you sat around and had to have a meeting about whether or not your neighbors were worthy of being in your space you don't own that church the church is the lord's I'm sorry I gotta go off on you just a little bit. Is that all right? Shame on us for planting in communities and saying we wanna be world changers, but we only, we only wanna change the people who already agree, look like, marry like, sleep like, spit like, and smell like us. Shame on us for planting in stages and planting for ages where unless you got a tattoo and your jeans are real tight, you, you don't belong here. What's wrong with us? Oh, I love you. You don't own. I love you. Come on. You don't own that ish. <laughs> you don't own you. And that's the problem of white supremacy, isn't it? Because you think you have to be in control. Isn't that the biggest problem? You think you have to control the outcomes. Poor white men. Mm -hmm. I'm so sorry. I'm a victim. The white cis head. I am a victim. Oh, Lord, y'all feel so bad. Your mom and daddy told you, you better be in charge of everything all the time. And that's the devil, baby. Because mm -hmm. God says, I'm in charge. And you are not, and you'll work with everybody. Do you know how fun it is sitting right here right now? <laughs> I feel so bad for all y'all, because I'm here and y'all are out there. Uh, yeah, so I, I think... Um, uh, I think I don't know what to say right now, but... Moving on and regaining control. I, I, uh, oh! <laughs> I need, to, I need to have a quick committee meeting to figure out what truth I can say. Truth truth Bring it, Pastor. Come over right. Well, look, I think one of the things that um, you've, just, you've said to us is that we need to see our neighbors and to be open to them. I, I'd love to hear you talk about some specific things that you have seen, some things that you've learned that we can learn as you've labored with them, because you said we're not the only ones that have a good idea. Tell us tell some of the beautiful things that you've seen, because we know that participating with the neighbor, seeing them as a form of repentance, and repentance is drawn by beauty, and so help us see what you've seen. 
Yeah, so there are a few things that I always like to um, talk about, and one is rejection and suffering, and understanding that you, we have all accidentally been conditioned to refuse to bear the reproach. However, we're separating ourselves from the opportunity to live and actually walk like Jesus did, right? To go outside the city gates and to meet him and to bear the reproach that he did because we know we have resurrection life through him. And so because the church has abandoned many of our communities, when we try to enter into justice work with our part with our neighbors, they won't want to partner with us right away. And you might get spit on. And chances are the church, your family, your broad family through history, through time, deserves to get spat on. So you take that. And then you understand via the suffering of being rejected as the greatest person in the room. Begin to understand that solidarity is only achieved through a humility that can only be embodied in someone who knows his or her own need, who knows their own need. What am I doing crying out Black Lives Matter and I believe that we will win if I'm walking presuming that I'm better than everybody who doesn't agree with me? Humility is the only way to achieve a solidarity that brings about reconciliation. So very specifically, what we see is after we started Faith for Justice, it was more of a bridge organization through which Christians who had sympathy but wanted to turn that sympathy into action, they didn't quite know what to do because they were convinced that there were boxes people had to check off in order for them to be worthy to participate with Christians. We thought maybe, I don't know, some of the atheists was going to rub off or something. I didn't, I didn't know the Holy Spirit it, it, it was so weak yeah, that you could catch atheism and he would leave you. I didn't know that. So we start talking about how you ain't gonna catch atheism like the flu. Go and work with that person. All y'all want to do is not get executed by a cop, okay? And we began to see something quite strange. We began to see fellow humans and we began to understand we began to actually understand what it looks like to pursue justice above pursuing being right about everything. Because that, now we're reformed, so you know we already think we're right about everything. So it's a really good lesson for the Presbyterian Church in America specifically, amen. It's a really good lesson for us to discover you might not have a handle on who God is. Because God might just own everybody even those who claim they do not know him or they despise him so faith for justice actually began to lead christians to go and sit at the feet of non-christians seems ridiculous and backwards but that was our first step is embracing the thought that we might engage by being quiet all right in our last uh, last couple minutes together uh i think we We've been going there and talking about it, but seeing our, our mission together, we talked about what we need to see in ourselves, what we need to see in our neighbors, their glory, um, their wisdom. But let's let's see our mission. What have you seen? What do we need to see in terms of what the work ahead? Uh, yeah, help help us because I think with a lot of times we can be blind to what the mission is and what the labor is. So what do you see that we need to see? First of all, civic engagement. Um, the church has been silent for too long. People who say we don't talk politics, we're afraid to talk politics. I'm not telling you to tell your congregation who to vote for. I'm telling you that when you see evil, you have a prophetic responsibility to call evil evil and to say there are destructive 
powers masquerading as ministers of faith, masquerading as witnesses of the gospel, and we have to tear that mess down. Some of those destructive powers occur in the way that we worship and fellowship together, don't they? They occur in the way that we choose to reach out to people. Oh, uh, I will feed you if you sit in on this chapel service. Think about that. When was the last time Jesus fed everybody after the Beatitudes? Didn't he heal them first in Matthew 4? Didn't he heal them and then he taught them? Didn't he do that? Didn't he afflicted? come weary and worn and had their physical needs met. We're crazy to think social justice and social gospel are at odds with the gospel. Don't feed me that because God fed me bread and then he saved my soul. So if Jesus did it wrong, then let me know. But that's one of the biggest places, that's one of the biggest places where we're failing. We refuse to engage on the political scene because we don't want to make people uncomfortable. And we refuse to get uncomfortable in our house because I built my house to make me feel better about being complacent. Tear down the idol that says you must be in control and you must own righteousness. Tear down the idol that's actually separating you from God because God is not white, God is not male. God owns everything. And above all, he wants to teach you what the real truth actually is. Let's thank Michelle Higgins. All right. All right. Uh, there's some more seats down front if you're interested or stand back there if you'd like. Uh, so Michelle starts off by talking about our blind spots our blind spots to how we see ourselves and to how we see our neighbors. So um, I want to hear from you all if, you, if, you, if you've got a blind spot that you can think of that uh, we as a church, Otter Creek or just sort of the church uh, writ large uh, might have that you'd highlight for us. Anybody? I think, I think she said a lot, uh, a whole lot. Blind spot was probably, you know, a small portion of what she was talking about. Uh, I, I simply give praise to the Southern Baptists who criticize the uh, alt right. Uh, sometimes I think we we have a tendency to uh, soften uh, white supremacists by calling them conservatives and alt right. Soften that, and in my mind, silence is consent to evil. Uh, when we sit back and see evil and don't respond to it, and I think those that are redeemed should should always speak against evil. It's not a political issue. It's not a democratic or, or Republican issue. Evil is evil in any form. Uh, I, I reflect on the. Uh, on, she, she she said a whole lot. That that that. Issues that that are that I've seen coming up. I mean, I, I, I see. I saw two Georgia prisoners overtake prison guards and kill them, and then they're captured in Tennessee, and they're still living. And think think if that was two black men that had overpowered two prison guards and were surrounded by policemen, would they have lived through it? And then we have in Oklahoma City a member of the church that's a police. 
unarmed. And she's a she's a guard ready for killing him. And then in, in Minnesota, the guy's killed uh, with his girlfriend and family. The whole incident. Uh, so so and, and he's a guard ready. The policeman is already. So so you're you're more likely to be killed by a cop because of the color of your skin than anything. And the church is silent. Those who are righteous are those who remember anything. Don't 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 seem to have any any emotions over that. But as long as and, and, and this this country is sitting on a powder keg, believe it or not. And, and if, if those that are redeemed do not respond to our social ills, it, it's gonna be it's gonna be the worst thing we ever seen in, um, in this country. The country's already tearing apart at its moral threads. Now I think I think uh, racism is is probably the Trojan horse that's gonna destroy this country. That in my mind. Thank you very much. That that was a lot of what she was talking about at the end is how it's the church's job to call evil evil and to speak out and to engage socially. Mike. Uh, I'm not I agree with Richard. I, I think it is more of a problem than what we realize. And uh, in my in my DMN program, uh, Lee Camp took us on a civil rights tour, and it was very humbling. Uh, to come back off of that and to uh, see and experience and to read what, what all is going on. The, here, the, to me, the spiritual thing in that is we can only reach out with the amount of space that we have within us to love. And the only way we're going to create that space to love and respond to these injustices is when we allow the love of God to come in us and set us free to have the time. Because how many of us don't watch the news because we can't deal with the pain and the suffering, so we shut it off. And and so the only way that we can overcome that is to allow the love of God to flow within us and look beyond the, the surface to the need and be able to try to respond to that need in some way. My opinions have changed on a lot of things between 18 years old and now, and, and have changed multiple times, but what I've noticed is that my blind spot always seems to be, I'm, I'm quick to become fundamentalist about whatever I believe, and in doing so, I no longer view a person who disagrees with me as someone who is capable of redemption, um, and I feel like that, whether it's racism, whether it's war, uh, whether it's any number of things, when we claim to be Christians and then say this person is beyond redemption, we dehumanize them, we then become open to violence towards them. And it seems that Christ's act on the cross of letting the Jews, letting his own people kill him rather than him giving them some sort of justice should be our, our primary calling and would go a long way towards us reconciling all the issues, whether it's race, whether it's war, whether it's whatever. If we can say, this person is a human being made in the image of God, regardless of the evil things that they do. The evil things that they do are not do not make them subhuman, do not make them 
not worthy of, of my love. Um, so to me, that, that's, where, that's where we need to work on our blind spot, and we need to turn off, turn off media that tries to convince us that the other side is subhuman. I don't like Donald Trump. Donald Trump is loved by God. I don't like ex-politician. That politician is loved by God. I don't like whomever political leader or pundit or whatever. Those people are made in the image of God, and regardless of the horrible things that they do, they are not beyond redemption, and we have to believe that. Yeah. One of the blind spots that she mentioned that struck me was just that we can focus so much on our, on our good stuff that our church does and think that that cancels out anything that we might um, not want to deal with um, whether it's we have a really good homeless ministry so therefore it's okay that we are all white in the congregation and that that's hard to hear because I, I want us to I want myself to feel good about my spiritual life but when I'm pointed at something of I need to work on something else that means there's more I got to work on and it's not just this one thing it's not the token the token sin that we work on or the token ministry that we have if we're not whole as we you know as the sermon was about this morning if we're not in community if we don't see everyone around that one table then we're not being unified uh, I think uh, there were a lot of generalizations in what she said. There were a lot of great things she said, but you have to be wary of generalizations, like saying we're all white, we're not all white. So I think it's human nature to generalize, but we need to you know, stay away from thinking Because I, I think you can beat yourself up over things, generalizing even your own actions. And it's really, you know, there's a spectrum. And we need to take... Uh, take stock of what we personally do, you know, watching a certain network or looking at a certain website or uh, getting a right view or a left view, and that's all you see. And to my point, I don't watch the news a lot because I think it's sensationalized uh, and it, it's not a, an accurate portrayal of what, what the world, what's actually going on in the world. Um, but what is it's hard to isolate what actually is a good news source these days. What what is uh, unbiased? So yeah, I, I continue to to look, um, but all I can do is judge what I see and what I do um, and what I can control, and, and that's really just me. What I think and what I do. And I think uh, if you if you try to control things that are out of your control, I, I think it's a a losing game you've got to you've got to give it up to God thank you uh, yeah actually I would suggest there's no such thing as an unbiased view source no one of us can be unbiased we can't help but bring our culture and our experience our biases to to our outlook so we just we left Um, we brought an uh, interracial couple to church with 
retreat that way. So you have to have that feeling. And um, <clears throat> I'm sorry, Skeeter. It's not even me. I'm sorry, Skeeter. You know, the speaker in the video talked about institutionalized racism, and of course we hear so much about that in the media with regard to police relations, and, um, whole, and I wholeheartedly support that discussion, but I would encourage you also to think about it from another perspective, um, and as we all go out during the week in our vocations, and what we do for a living every day, you know, that's a perspective we just don't hear enough about. I'm a, college, I'm a business professor at Lipscomb, and, you know, we spend a lot of time trying to teach our students to act professional. I can't tell you the hours we put in trying to get them to dress a certain way, act a certain way, cut their hair a certain way. And the longer I do that, the more I really stop and think, we're teaching them to act like white people, dress like white people, talk like white people, be buttoned up and conservative and bear the emotional restraint of white people. And, um, I think that one thing that's so valuable that Michelle said is that we um, have to stop thinking we're right all the time. And I think that has to go, um, <clears throat> as we should talk about race in our churches, we also have to be very real about um, who controls the economic opportunities that are all around us and who gives the jobs and who gets the jobs and why they get those jobs and those nice jobs with insurance and benefits and all the things that let us make a nice life, buy nice houses and nice cars. Who really has those opportunities? So I just, you know, as I look at my students and truly, you know, that's my job and I want the best for them and I really do want them to build a nice life for themselves. I also think, you know, we, we have to hope, I hope that we reach a place in our business communities that there isn't just one right way to act and right way to do things and people who have access to those opportunities aren't just people who have been trained to act like white people, <laughs> like really wealthy white people. And so that's just one thing that <coughs> it stays on my heart a lot because it's in front of me all the time and it's part of my profession. <coughs> yeah, her, her reformed Presbyterian uh, tradition has a court of the market, I'm thinking that right, right? <coughs> Let's, let's, let's talk about white privilege. And I think what we, as we think we're white privileged and we have some sense of entitlement, and I think the big perverse thing is that we say, okay, let's, we want to provide that um, privilege. We'll, we'll let the people of color have privilege now. And that's arrogant and that's wrong. It's like the only thing we're entitled is to be servants of God and to love our brothers and sisters. And so it's it's a perverse, almost separate and equal way we, we approach it. We take our our entitlement and say, oh, you have some entitlement too. And that's the way we're approaching it, and it's wrong. We need to break bread together and um, at, understand that that person of color is our brother and sister created by God and, and we're servants of Jesus Christ. That's the only thing we're entitled to. So I think sometimes we there is we believe that's good intention, but that's arrogance. Yeah. <coughs> I teach pre-K um, in Metro at Unit Elementary, and I have a lot of um, Arabic students, some Muslim, mostly a lot of um, Coptic Christians from Egypt. 
some Hispanic students, um, African-American, usually have one or two, Caucasian, white, um, a lot of different languages, some, a lot from Africa sometimes. Um, anyway, but it's just so beautiful at that age. They become friends and they don't care about if you're Arabic, if you're Spanish, if you're from Africa. They, they just wanna be friends, you know, and it's just really, it's just so sweet to see that. Um, but there to be, I'm a state funded class, so you have to be low income to get in my class. Um, so all of them are low, free or reduced lunch. Um, anyway, but it's just the courage it takes to move. Some of them have been refugees. Some of them have, you know, come from immigrated for a better life. Um, and the parents do jobs and um, so that the kids can go to school and they can hopefully have a better life. Um, but just to see their struggle. Um, and, I, and I told my family last night, was, I feel like I live in two different worlds. I live here in Brentwood and we went to downtown Franklin yesterday. It's a totally different world. And then I went to a wedding yesterday in Antioch, my assistant got married. And she, she's, she's from El Salvador, her family is, so she's Hispanic, but bilingual. Um, and her husband is white, blonde, his hair could be. But they, the preacher was so sweet that they're, um, he was talking about hope for the future for the church, that they, um, that they'll be able to see and help people. You know, they're coming together, I think, um, of what in the church it was so neat there was african-american white hispanic you know it's just really what it what i think it should be and i think it it's hard for me as a divorced single white woman <coughs> sometimes to come you know to church in redwood and here and i know it would be so hard i think it would be for my students for their families to come this side of town to, to very affluent places. I mean, it would be so intimidating, I would think. I don't know what the answer is to that. I just think <coughs> it's, it would be very hard. So if that's true, there's these two different worlds and it would be hard. Is it our responsibility <coughs> as a church in upper middle class Brentwood to try and break down those walls between those two worlds? Is it our responsibility to make it to where it would be comfortable for them to come? If so, how? I'm just glad we have so few questions here to talk about in 20 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that I think that she said that I, 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 I think has, it's really interesting, the idea of liberation. And liberation, actually, there's two aspects to it. Uh, someone once said, the salvation of the rich is tied to the salvation of the poor, or you could say the salvation of the rich is tied to the oppression of the poor. Uh, there's two sides of that, but on both sides, it's uncomfortable because um, there's changes that have to happen. Uh, I was I was interested in this because of the fact that last week we talked about or the the Q message talked about how culture speaks in and, and helps us become better in our theology. 
because it raises questions that make us uncomfortable, but questions that we have to work with. And uh, I think we're out of time. Thank you for coming today. And yes. If anybody wants to be more proactive, contact Dwayne Dixon. You know, Dwayne is helping us. Dwayne's helping us lead a lot of different ministries. If you don't know where to get involved or what to do, check with him. We're, we're working with refugees, with inner city. I mean, we're just doing a lot of different things. So it's not like that I have to go out and do something separate, but we've got a lot of good things where you can participate. So give Dwayne a call, and uh, and he can share with you different ideas of how you can personally respond to that. That's all. Thank you.